once again, as we come to the Ark narrative or to, the, to this passage in 1 Samuel, I must remind you those words, and I'm paraphrasing, that the Apostle Paul wrote that these things are written, that we may have hope, that we may be encouraged. And you may ask, how can this passage encourage us? The, the sentiments, the, the episode that is recorded for us here is so distant chronologically, geographically from us. Even the, the actions and the attitudes and the smells and, the, and the, the sentiments here seem so foreign to us. The Philistines are going through a difficult season in their lives. We are told in verse 1, for seven months. And if you remember the, the previous chapters, we, you know that they, they should have known better. They should have known better than to do what they were doing up until now. At the Battle of Aphek in, in chapter 4, they had rightly understood that the Ark of the Lord represented the throne of God who had devastated the Egyptians. But they forgot about this. They were drunk with their victory in the battlefield. And even though they themselves, they, they were living uh, through a, a sort of Exodus plague, they, they didn't really understand it. You know, in Exodus 12, uh, we are told there that the, the plagues were, were, in a sense, described as a, a, a God waging war against the, the idols and, the, and the, the deities of the Egyptian gods or the Egyptian nation. And after Aphek, they, they should have known, as they saw Dagon uh, ray, uh, thrusted to the ground in one morning, set him up. The next morning, they come back, and again during the night, Dagon was there, was cast down to the floor, and his head was, was cut off, and his hands were, were cut off as well. They should have known. They should have known better the Philistines. If you notice, this whole passage, this, these three chapters that we've been considering over the last few weeks are pregnant with, with Exodus language. You know the story of Exodus, uh, the Passover, and how the Lord carried out his victory at night with no help of anyone else. That as morning broke on a new day, that the Lord was victorious. They should have known better. Because the Lord was not only content to crush and dismember Dagon. He carried out his victory throughout their land in Philistia. His, uh, the, the exile, which is a, another uh, theme that recurs through this passage, the exile of the Lord... It was the Lord that was sent into exile because of the sins of the people. The exile of the Lord turned into victory. And as we read in chapter 6, it, it turned into a, a procession, a victorious march through the Philistine territory. The Philistines have a lot of questions in their mind. The first question that we read of is in verse um, 2. We read, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? 
This is especially pressing, isn't it? This first question is one that is especially pressing. They understood. At least three of the Philistine cities over these seven months have been ravaged by this, by this plague, by this pestilence. It started in Ashdod. It moved to, to, um, to Ashkelon uh, and then to Ekron. They were struck, we read, with tumors. And again, these, these themes, as we come to a close, I, I, I think it is important uh, to a close of this section, I think it is important for us to see some of these things. Not only that cast our minds back to, to Exodus, because the, the Bible is uh, uh, one big uh, story about our Lord Jesus Christ. It, it is not surprising that Although it was written over a period of uh, thousands of years by 40 different authors or so from different backgrounds, some were kings as King David, some were prophets, some were, were, were peasants, uh, the storyline of the Bible is one. And I want you to see that at, right at the start. There is parallels in this passage with, with stories going forward in the, in the history of Israel. The, the, the verse 1 says that in the country of the Philistines, the only other time that this, that this terminology appears is in the story of David, the king that is coming uh, in, this, in this book. And like David, both, or let me say it like this, both David and the ark were exiled. Both David and the ark represented the... the the center of the Lord's rule over his people. Both, both eventually brought victory to Israel, but both were abused uh, by his own people. The ark abused as a superstitious ornament by, by, by the Israelites. David abused by his own, rejected by his own, in the person of Saul, the king at the time. Both were exiled in, as I said, in the land of Philistine. And both were eventually restored and received honor in the new capital, Jerusalem. And if you're a Christian, I know that you're saying, well, there's another story coming up that has all of these. Uh, there's, a, there's a climatic ending to this story that has all of these features. Not only David and the ark, but our Lord Jesus is the antitype that the ark and David were pointing towards. He is the center of God's rule. He is the one that brings victory to Zion, to Israel. He is the one who was rejected by his own. His own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the power to, to be made sons of God. But the, Jesus himself was also exiled. He left his home in glory. He came to this Wilderness, that is our world, and both eventually were restored, or not both, and Jesus is, himself was also restored and will, at the la in the last day, receive glory in the new Jerusalem from all his saints. So as we look to this story, let's keep in mind these parallels because it's very hard not to see them as well. So the Philistines had a problem. The question is, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? They have a problem with the Lord. They, they have, not all is well in the land of Philist Philistia. 
The Philistines have this problem to resolve. What had happened to their god, Dagon, what had, what had happened to themselves and to their land is all indicative that there is something inherently wrong between them and God. So that's why they, they are now going to try to observe proper protocol. They realize we haven't been observing proper protocol. We have displeased, we have dishonored this uh, Israel's God. So let us call the diviners. Let us call the, the priests. Let us get some help. And their, their, their answer here, their action here, is both marvelously insightful and terribly ignorant at the same time. Why do I say it's marvelously insightful and terribly ignorant at the same time? Because, first of all, they had insight. They realized something is off, something is wrong, something in, our, in, in what's happening to us, in this lesson that we are learning over these seven months, is teaching us that we've done something wrong, that, we've, that, we, uh, that we have offended the Holy God. But yet, even with this insight, they are terribly wrong in the way that they go about it. They are very, very wrong in the way that they go about it. But let's just look at this insight that they have. The first truth that we see in their actions is that God's wrath is brought upon us by our sin. That's, the, that's the, the, what they are suspecting that this plague and this, this pestilence that has been affecting them, this, this, these seven months of terror that they've been going through, is to do with sin. That's why they, they want to do a trespass offering. That's why they want to do a guilt offering. And they're right. That's insightful. That's very good. The, the fact that they place God's ark beside their, their own deity, that they try to add the, the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the pantheon of their deities, is a sin. You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord said. It is a sin. And the second insightful thing is that, uh, that God responds to sin with wrath and judgment. The Apostle Paul says this in the New Testament, that God reveals his wrath um, from heaven against all unrighteousness and, and, and against, against all ungodliness of men. And given that sin produces third insight, given that sin produces guilt, there needs to be, a, there needs to be an atonement to appease, to pacify, to placate, to turn aside God's wrath. Only a, a sacrifice would be suitable to appease an angry God. Verse 3, they said, If you send the ark of the God of Israel away, do not send it empty, but by all means return it with a trespass offering, with a, a guilt offering, with a placating, a placating offering. Satisfy the wrath of God by offering a sacrifice to him. And this, this is the point where they are so ignorant as well. Because what they should have done, what they didn't do, 
Well, let's let's look at what the trespass offering was. They said uh, they, they asked, "What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him?" Uh, five golden tumors and five golden rats. It is a very weird uh, offering, a very weird sacrifice, a very weird trespass offering for them to give. At least for us in the twenty first century. But I'm told by people who know the the ancient Near Eastern. Uh, um, protocols better than I that this was quite normal you would offer things that represented that for which you have were being or the the punishment or the or the what they were suffering I'm not sure but that's what the commentators say that this was the case in many of these ancient Near Eastern civilizations that the the offering must in some way correspond correspond to the punishment that they were receiving. And I think that is insightful and wrong as well, <laughs> right and wrong as well. God's judgment and God's appeasement of his wrath needs to be in line with the sin that was committed. But it's not the way that they did it from a biblical standpoint and that's why I say it was ter terribly uh, terribly not the right thing to do from the biblical standpoint they, they should have went to the Israelites not to the diviners and to their priests to their own priests they should have went to the Israelites if they had went to an Israelite priest the Israelite priest would say no 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 you, yes you need to make a, a trespass offering that's good you, you got that far but it needs to be a ram without spot or blemish that's the only thing that God, the God of Israel will accept not mice or not rats certainly not tumors I wonder how this whole situation panned out in, in the land of Philist Philistia. Uh, did they have like, oh, okay guys, we need you all to come. We need, we need five specimens of the tumors. We need to, to, to make a, a mold. And I don't know how this thing worked. But, but, but had they asked an Israelite priest, they would have known that these things that they were about to do were unclean in God's sight. But they failed to do so. And notice as well, as we move through chapter 6, we won't go verse by verse this morning. We have uh, a longer section. But notice as well that there was so, uh, some kind of doubt in their, in, their, in their actions. Perhaps, it may be. We don't know exactly if this, if this, uh, if this will appease him, but it's worth a try, right? What the Israelites should have done is, is not work on the uh, basis of perhaps and it may be, but they should have consulted. They should have went to, to the Israelites. If they had asked the priest, that's what they would have received. A sacrifice that is, that is acceptable in the sight of the Lord is like this. Leviticus five, uh, chapter 5, verse 15. A ram without blemish out of the flock. That is the compensation that you are to bring for your sins. If they had asked the prophet Isaiah, I know this is before the prophet Isaiah, but in the, New, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah says, doesn't he? 
he would have gone on and informed that, 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 he, that he had to look forward to a savior, one who was wounded for our transgressions, one who was crushed for our iniquities, one who upon him was a chastisement that brings us peace. How do you appease a God that is righteously angry at us? The sacrifice of his own son. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's not five rats and five golden tumors are not enough. It is commendable. They tried. They said, well, if we're going to do it, let's do it out of gold. It needs to be some, some form of costliness involved with it. But it's, it's wholly inadequate. It's completely inadequate. The, the, the level uh, the, of our sin, five golden tumors and five golden rats, doesn't even come close to the price that was needed to appease and pacify a holy, righteous, angry God. You know what it took, don't you? You know what it took to appease and pacify a holy, righteous, angry God. The the Apostle Paul says it to us. It took the propitiation of blood of Christ Jesus, God's only begotten Son. They were right. They wanted to offer costly uh, uh, materials. But their estimation of the cost of their forgiveness was completely and utterly wrong. And the reason why we, they thought this and the reason why people nowadays think that this, this is actually not too bad is because we don't understand how holy God is and therefore how sinful our sin is in his presence. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, the Apostle Peter says, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's how, how much forgiveness costs. There, there you are. That's what they do. Very inside. With this uh, test, take, in, take the ark, put it on a, on a new cart, put it uh, uh, yoke to the new cart to milk uh, cows and send it on its way. If it's the Lord, something will happen. If it's not, um, uh, we know it's just by chance, they say. And, and, and notice uh, again another parallel, just as an, as an aside. Notice another parallel in this story with the story of Exodus. You know the story of Exodus, the people of God after the 10th plague are finally uh, allowed to go. And they go with, with the riches of Egypt. Here's again the ark of the Lord. The Lord after again finishing victor, victorious, going away from, from, uh, from the land of Philistia with the riches of Philistia. Again, parallels that we are meant to see. That, that there is a God who is in control of all these things. That we are meant, when I say these things, they mention these parallels, as well as for, for, to encourage us, brothers and sisters, when we read the word of God, to, to pay closer attention. 
every yod and every tittle, every, every, every word that is in this book is full of wisdom. And we're meant to pay careful attention to these things. These gifts were not for Israel. These gifts were not for, 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 for the, the Israelites. These gifts were to pacify, to placate God's wrath. And there's something profoundly ironic in all of this. There's something so profoundly ironic uh, in, in all of this. Compare the actions, in a, although mistaken in, in part of the, of the priests and the diviners of the Philistines, to the actions of the priests of Israel when they suffered the chastisement of God in the battle, in the battle of Ebenezer. Compare the actions. Seems like the Philistines are actually a little bit further down the road. They are a little bit further down the road uh, of realizing that they were displeasing God. The pagan priests are so much better and faster at identifying the root cause of the problem that, uh, than the elders of Israel. Although, I think they, uh, maybe that's the best way of explaining They identify the root problem very well. Their solution is wholly inadequate. That's maybe another way of expressing it. They recognize the urgency of seeking atonement. Why should you burden your hearts like the, the, the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? Do not harden your hearts. And that's a question for us as well. Why do you harden your heart? Why do you harden your heart? It remains valid today for us. Why do we, upon the offering of the forgiveness of sins in our Lord Jesus Christ, and you only have to receive it by faith, why do you harden your hearts? Why do you reject the atonement that God has provided? Why do you act like, like the friends of Job? That rather say, God, depart. I don't want, depart God. We don't want anything here. Why would anyone who realizes how holy and righteous and, and, and just uh, God is and how desperately wicked our sin is in his sight, why would someone reject his atoning offer? Why would someone reject the forgiveness of sins? But yet... As ridiculous as it may sound, people do. You might be doing it. Despite all that they had experienced, the Philistines still entertained doubts. So that's why they asked for the milk cows, the, the new cart. Again, if, if you think of the new cart, you, you remember the story that happened uh, uh, 1,200 years later when Jesus asks for, uh, for the fall of a uh, of a, donkey, a donkey that was never ridden on to, to be set apart. There is something of respect here on their part. But they want to send it off. And you don't need to be a farm person, someone who has dealt with cows, to understand what's going on here. You don't need to, need to, really need to know a lot about uh, animal husbandry to understand what's going on in this, in this section. Cow's natural tendency, if they are milking, if they have, if they have uh, 
uh, calves is to go back to be with them. So they set up this test to ascertain the will of God, to ascertain if God was in it or not. Get two cows, never yoked, and let's see what happens. I imagine maybe one of those farmers was, were the, the owner of those cows was there. Oh, look at what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. I've seen this happen a thousand times. But lo and behold, it didn't. They set him on the road, and immediately the milk cows, they hitched them to the cart, shut their calves at home, and they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold, rats, and the images of the tumors. In verse 12, then the cows headed straight for the road at Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing the, the sound that milking cows make when they're, when, when they're utters, is that how you call it, the... Uh, I don't know the, the other name, uh, are getting full. It's painful. And they're basically moaning for, to be released from the, the, them being too full. They were lowing uh, along the way. Um, but they went. They did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And look, I, I had in mind... To, to, to address this, uh, this here, and I'll address it briefly, but it is important for us to realize that as well. Some of us might be tempted, and there is biblical warrant for that, to ask for the supernatural as a revelation of God's will. Uh, Gideon did it. Did it. Um, in, in some way, you could say that uh, Elijah also did it in mount, in the, at the mount. Uh, drench the, the sacrifice with water. Make it as impossible as, uh, 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 as possible. Make it as difficult as possible. And you will see if, God is, if my God is going to act or not. So, in a sense, there is something of commendation in us having that uh, something uh, or behaving in that way, but I would like to 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 put a warning sign on it. You see, just because God sometimes acts that way, it should it should not encourage us to act in superstitious manners or to use of superstitious approaches to discern God's will. Subjective signs crafted by our own foolishness, our own folly, are sometimes used as excuses to do what we know is wrong in the sight of the Lord. And so often it's the case that we as Christians, we do that. We want to, be con we want to do this. So we, get, we, get all kind, we, we direct the, the, the providences uh, to justify what we were already wanted. We tend, or someone said, to divinize our hunches and our feelings and our persuasions. And sometimes we're providing Satan an opportunity to deceive us. We should instead do what the Apostle Peter says to us. We have something more sure. We have the prophetic word. We have the Bible to which we will all do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, 2 Peter 1.19. 
If we want God's revelation to us, here it is. It's scripture. So the ark is sent its way, and it's a lovely picture. I wish I w- it's one of those places in the, in the history of, of the Bible that I wish I was there. I wish I was in, had a way of turning on a television and, and seeing all of it uh, as in a movie. But there are a few places, a few episodes that you go, I wish I could see it with my eyes. This is one of them. Picture the scene. The, the Ark of the Lord being taken down the road. It was um, apparently about seven miles being ridden by no one, being guided by no one. Two cows going down the road and the Philistine lords having received what we would call the proverbial stick with tumors, with all these pestilences going on and, the, and them going behind the Ark of the Lord. It's a victory march. It's a procession. The Lord was not defeated. The Lord was taken into exile. And the Lord alone, by his own arm, he wrought the victory. And he's now coming back to Israel. It was all God's doing. The directing of the cow towards the promised land. He fought the battle alone. He won the victory alone. He rose victorious alone. What a scene. But you see, again, the parallels here are important. If this is meant to mimic and to parallel the Exodus, then what we have as the ark comes into the promised land is the, the conquest of the land. And we see it, don't we? The re-entry of the, uh, of the presence of God into the land, in this in, uh, as represented by the ark, means that now the Israelites will come to, again, have to face with this holy God. And we see, don't we? They made a series of mistakes. You might ask, why is it that the God struck the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked into the ark. Uh, and you wonder, what, what was the mistake so, so bad that 50,070 men of the people uh, were, were slain on that day? Well, they made a series of mistakes. They offered the cows. God did, never asked for, for cows to be offered in, as a sacrifice. It was supposed to be male sacrifices. Leviticus 13 tells us about it. According to, the, to numbers, no one should behold or look upon the ark. I'm not sure what it means here. And commentators argue and disagree and you, uh, about what it means to look uh, uh, into the ark. Is it that they opened it and it was kind of a tourist attraction and everyone was passing and looking at the Ten Commandments and, and all of that inside? Or was it that they just, were just, the ark was uncovered? We are told that the ark was not to be seen by anyone. Not even the priests could, could see it over the normal course of their procedures. What the, the Levites should have done on that situation is probably have covered it with a veil. But apparently they were happy to, to leave it there as a tourist attraction to people to see. And what a sight. They rejoiced. They were happy. Glory has returned. No longer Ichabod. Look at this. How it was natural for the crowds to gather and to look and to see. But yet they broke. They, they broke God's law. 
they were allowed to look. You see, that what, what we are being told here is that God is to be worshipped, but he is to be worshipped according to his own will. And that is so difficult for us in our generation. We think that we know better. We think in our culture that we, that we can worship God and treat him as we, we please, as long as we're worshipping. But God is to be worshipped with reverence. Not with our own wisdom or by our own folly, but by obeying what he has commanded to do. What he has give us as, gave us as precepts in his law. I must say, nowadays, you, you go to some of these churches and you look at the worship and it's carnal. And it's, it's, it's worldly. There's nothing of reverence. There's nothing of, 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 of respect, of awe and wonder in the presence of God. It's all very wishy-washy, even romantic at times, but, but very modern and, and irreverent. And often, I'm not saying that everything that is done there is wrong, but often some of those things done in those churches is unscriptural. The Levites of Beth Shemesh understood that they were in the presence of holy God. So what did they, did they do? Exactly what the Philistines did. Send it somewhere else. We don't want it here. This is too, it's too hard to stand in the presence of this holy God. Send it to Kirjath-Sherim. Kirjath-Sherim, send it somewhere else. We don't want anything to do with this. And finally, before I close, let me just mention this, because this is also interesting as a, a, so, a small pointing forward to something that the Lord is already doing in the, in the history of Israel, but that will finally be fulfilled in, in, the Lord, in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know who the, who the Gibeonites were. Kirjat Jerem was a, a Gibeonite uh, city. And you know the story of the Gibeonites? You don't, I'll tell you, in Joshua, the Gibeonites were the Gentiles that had fooled um, Joshua... Uh, that had fooled the Israelites into permitting them to live in the land. And they were assigned as woodcutters and water bearers of the tabernacle. The Gentiles are actually the ones who are tasked with retaining the, present, the ark until the time comes when, in the providence of God, David will take it to Jerusalem. But isn't it interesting? The Gibeonites, those that were Gentiles, welcomed into the covenant, are the ones now with the presence of God. With, in, with, tasked, with, trusted with, with, with this wonderful thing. They were not born into the covenant. But yet they trusted God's word. They were reverent. They acted according to scripture. They were keen to have the ark in their midst. And they trusted in God's grace. What a privilege. But we'll have to, to leave it there. But there is a question. There is the final question in this, in, this, in this section. A question that is in verse 20. And the man of Beth Shemesh, who is asked and said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God, 
and to whom shall he go up from us? It's the first part of the question. Who is able to stand in the presence of this holy God? Who is able to stand in the presence of Jehovah, Yahweh, God, this holy Lord? Who is able to stand? The answer is not Dagon. He fell on his face. The Philistines, they are not able to, to stand in the presence of the, the Holy God. You might say, oh, it's the Israelites. No, the Israelites are not able to stand in the presence of this Holy God. They act no better than the worshippers of Dagon. So who is able to stand in the presence of this Holy God? It seems like the Lord is fighting all of them. He fights the Philistines wherever they are, whether they are in Ashdod or Gath or Ekron or in Beth Shemesh. The Lord is not pleased to be worshipped in an irreverent manner. So how do we stand in the presence of a holy God? How do you stand? How will you stand in the presence of a holy God when this life is done? The only way is to be cleansed from our sin to be freed from God's holy wrath. To believe this message of salvation is to understand the very heart of the gospel to us. And I know, I've spoken a lot about wrath today and, 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 and righteous anger. And, and, and that is very hard on the years of modern man. We don't like to think of God in those terms. God as a, 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 a God of wrath you know why it bothers us? You know why you're bothered with this sense of God's wrath? Because we have no sense of sin. What is sin? Because if we understood what sin is, we would understand why God is angry at it. We have no sense of the justice of God, of the holiness of God, of who God truly is, of this God that Isaiah saw in, in chapter that we read in, at the beginning of the service. Woe is me, he said, when he saw all of this, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm done. What was the solution to Isaiah? It was the atoning action of God. What is the solution for us? Is the gospel. You cannot understand the gospel if you don't understand the righteous anger that God has. If you don't understand sin, you cannot understand grace. If you do not understand how wicked and depraved you are, you cannot understand how gracious and loving God is in Jesus Christ. You know the story of Jesus in Luke 13. The story of that of the Tower of Siloam. They asked a very modern question to, to our Lord Jesus, didn't they? Why, where was God in all of this? Where was God in, in all of that that happened in Siloam? It was probably the main news of the day. The, the, the shooting that today happens and people ask, where was God in that shooting? Where was God in the tsunami in 2000? Uh, was it four? Where was God in the... In the, in the in the towers, in the Twin Towers, in the, in the 9-11 attack. Where was God in all of this? Where is God? How can such things happen? He's a God of love, as you say He is. How, if He's a God of love, as you say He is, how can this happen? You know what Jesus answered to that question 2,000 years ago? If you don't repent, you will likewise perish. 
If you don't repent, you will all likewise perish. See, Jesus didn't say, see, uh, I'm sorry, it was an accident. Well, God is not able to control all the things. It's, it's a very big universe. And he, has, he didn't excuse things like that. Unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. So my friends, this passage this morning brings us face to face with our greatest problem. It is your greatest problem. How will you stand in the presence of a holy God? Will you seek to give some holy, holy as in completely, uh, inadequate offering for your sins? It doesn't work. The Philistines know that. It might have uh, uh, finished for a season what had, uh, their sin might have, uh, might have uh, dwindled for a bit, uh, or the, the punishment for their sin might have dwindled for a bit after they returned, which is a very sad thing. They shouldn't have. Our greatest problem is our hearts, is our sin. Our greatest problem is we have broken God's commandment. We have sin in the presence of a holy, righteous, just God. And our greatest problem this morning is that we haven't faced up with the holiness of his character. So God is holy that he can even look upon sin. But he can look at the blood of Jesus that took away our sin. And that's what I would plead to you, for you to do. What reason have you not to look to Christ, to repent of your sins,